Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Saparova. I am a CEO, as you know, guys, of firmsconsulting.com and strategytraining.com. And today we have with us Ryan McNally Linz. Ryan is an associate director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture and co author of a book called Life Worth Living. And don't switch to the next podcast because it is not about strategy. There is a connection here and it is an important topic and it's all will make sense as you continue listening. Welcome, Ryan. So great to have you with us. Thanks so much for the opportunity to talk with you. Ryan, so let's start from just setting some context. So now you are Associate Prof- Director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. How did you end up doing this work? I was an undergraduate at Dartmouth, and I was a political science and economics major, and I kept running into these questions that I couldn't avoid. These questions not simply about how the world works, but about how the world should be, about what kind of world we should be hoping for and working towards together. And uh, this led me to study theology. And so I went to Yale Divinity School to work with Miroslav Wolf, uh, the director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. And we struck up a partnership that now has been going for almost 15 years and has resulted in this book, among other things. And of course, Life Worth Living came out as a result of very, very popular course you guys have at Yale. Could you speak a little more about that? Yeah. So... We had this sense um, about 10 years ago now that students were hungry to have a chance in their classroom to talk about the deep questions of life that you know keep them up until 2 a.m. in the dorm rooms uh, and and to do that in a way that really could bring the best of their intellectual energies to the the heart questions, the questions about the shape of their lives, the direction they were going, their deepest desires and how those should be formed and and how they should live them out. And so we started to design this course to try to interact with these great uh, religious and philosophical texts and thinkers who can give us a sense for the terrain of questions that we need to ask if we're going to discern for ourselves what we believe matters most in life, what we believe is the kind of life that's most truly worth living. And of course, the way we are primed by culture and so on in universities right now is to go from A to B and not to ask ourselves why we're actually going to point B. Is it actually the right point to go to? And this is kind of actually a great place to start tying in for everyone listening. Why is why are we talking about this topic on strategy skills podcast? What is the connection? So so let's explore this. Yeah, so I, I think there are two steps. And the first step is captured by this um, by this aphorism from the, the great German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. He says, if you have your why in life, you can get along with almost any how. 
And that underscores the importance of purpose, of the sort of things we talk about when we talk about mission or vision, uh, what's driving our, uh, our actions and where are we trying to go. But Nietzsche only gets at one level. The first level is, is figuring out your why. The second level is to realize that not every why is equally worthy of your investment. Uh, you have a certain dignity as a human being, a certain a deep value, and you're going to invest that somewhere. That's just what your life is. It's an investment of who you are, and you can you can invest it poorly. Uh, so it's not just about having any why. It's about really sifting and seeing whether the whys that are driving your life uh, are worth it. That is so true, and. Many people, even even in my audience, in our audience, strategy skills podcast, but also broader firms consulting, we have clients who are asking themselves this question and we help clients to get to the core of why. But what are some of the things that you found that work to help your students and readers get to an answer? The first thing we need to do is get used to the kind of question this is. So we distinguish between four modes of, of existence, one of which is just reflex. We do what we do because that's what we do. And this is this can be a very good place to live. That's what it's like to be in a state of flow. Uh, you're just in it. You're not asking questions. But then there are three kinds of questions you might ask. One is how to be more effective at getting where you're going. That's a kind of strategy question at its core, right? That's uh, That's the heart of strategy. The next set of questions is about self-awareness. What is it that you really want? Where do you really want to be going? And then the third, the third set of questions, the deepest layer is what's really worth wanting. And getting used to asking that kind of worth question is the first step. The next step is to break that monumentally huge question down into littler bits that you have at least some chance of getting some traction with. So let's maybe give an example, because I think that the way you explained, you already took someone on a journey and it started getting easier for them to figure out, okay, what is worth wanting, but then let's break it down a little more for them. So, so maybe we can take an actual example. Let's say somebody, so if we take some of the common listeners of Strategy Skills Podcast, it will be someone who is quite senior within a very large organization. They're managing a large team. They have a family, they have children, they have a spouse, they're supporting their family, extended family. And they are a leader. They are a leader at work, they're a leader at home, they're a leader for the extended family as well. So how would they start breaking out, breaking down what is worth pointing question? Yeah, a great question for somebody in a position like that is to ask at the deepest level, who do you answer to? Who in the world or transcending the world, if you believe in God, for example, has the authority to point to you and say, no, Chris, I I think you've made a misstep. I think you're failing to live up to the standards you should be living to. This is a, a question about responsibility. To whom are you responsible? And when you've reached a position of leadership, that becomes complicated. Oftentimes, we can rely on sort of social structures where we have real accountability straight to an obvious, say, in a, a, an employment situation, to a boss. And we say, as far as this job is concerned, mostly I'm accountable to that person. 
but at the leadership level, you've really got to ask, you know, fundamentally, where does that responsibility lie? And who am I trying to, um, whose judgment am I trying to live up to in this life that I'm living, in this organization that I'm leading? Another question you might ask is, what's worth hoping for? What kind of success is genuinely good? Um, is it simply more of the kind of success that we've had? Is it just for us? Should we be hoping for our firm's success? Or is there a broader horizon of hope that we need to have such that we're hoping not just for success in our projects of some kind, but to really see a change in the world that matters for a lot of different people, even people we've never met, people we haven't even thought about. That is very true. And I think that another very interesting area to discuss is what, what I think keeps people back from asking themselves this question, what is a life worth living? And questions as important as this one is they believe that it is the individual question. Mm, yeah. And yeah, and it can feel lonely, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you're, I'm out on an island here trying to figure out the meaning of life. <laughs> um, it is decidedly above your pay grade, no matter how high your pay grade is. And one of the things that's great about how we do this in the Yale class is we're we're bringing together two different kinds of groups of people. We have a group of contemporaries, of peers, right? People who share a certain feature of life that they're at Yale together. And so they know each other, they know what they're going through at some level. And we bring them together with people from different traditions and perspectives from across history. And some of them from thousands of years ago who still have valuable things to contribute to the conversation. And when you do this kind of dialogical approach to the big questions of life, suddenly you find that you're not alone. And it's a way where you're, you have more company here than when you're spending your time trying to figure out what you want, because that's, that's like looking in and right. Who, who's better at looking in than you are? Uh, Cause it's you. But when it's this question of worth, then everybody is a potential partner in the process. Ryan, could you give us some examples? I know you have some phenomenal examples to share. Um, yeah, what kind of examples would you like to hear of some of the some of the perspectives we bring in, some of the conversations we have with our students? I'm happy to share whatever you'd like to hear. Yes, absolutely. So I was specifically thinking of examples from history, examples of big thinkers from the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I here's one that I think is really interesting because it it uh it escapes us most of the time. This question seems pretty like it has an obvious answer. How does a good life feel? It seems like the answer is a good life feels good. And there's a really rigorous philosophical tradition called utilitarianism that says just that. And then it builds a very profound ethical system off of that and, and can be very orienting in life. The question, though, is whether it's true. And uh, you can go back to say there are these texts about ancient Buddhist nuns, the kind of first generation of, of women who encounter the Buddha and and think this is this is the way of life. This is the truth. And um, 
one of them, there's a story where she's going out to the woods to meditate and this sleazy guy comes up to her and starts hitting on her and trying to convince her that where how, what she, she should be doing with her life is living in a palace with him, enjoying like all sorts of different kinds of pleasures and everything. And she just says, that's what you take as pleasure is not for me. I, there's something totally different. I, I don't think a good life feels like that. In fact, a good life is a sort of unattachment to that. This is a totally different way of thinking about the question of how a good life feels than what we ordinarily think. And it can be hard to get our heads above the water of our culture to see those other answers unless we're willing to listen to these voices from far away in time and space. And in fact, it becomes very, very dangerous to live a life where you are just trying to please yourself and trying to do things that that gives you some kind of pleasure because what people find quite quickly is that they can never be satisfied. And they just Oh yeah, if if it's the case that desire just perpetuates itself. And so if all you're doing is moving from kind of seeking pleasure to seeking pleasure, this is I take it is is the main Buddhist diagnosis diagnosis of the problem of our existence is that we're caught up in these cycles of desire. And it, it it's actually seeing the emptiness of that that gets you closer to the truth. That is very true. And for someone now listening and thinking, oh, wow, I actually live my life kind of like that. Yes, I'm a good father. Yes, I'm a good leader. But I actually just often think, okay, I, I, I will work very hard, but it's all is done so that on Friday, I can go and have beer with my friends. And over the weekend, I can do everything I want. What should they start thinking? What kind of questions they should start asking themselves to avoid mm -hmm. the emptiness that comes with when you just follow in your desires? Yeah. So there, one, one danger in having that realization is that you then throw yourself from that sort of life into a kind of obsessive workaholism uh, from you can switch from just kind of trying to fulfill immediate desires and, and, you know, the simple pleasures or whatever to a kind of fanatical obsession with achievement. But that is going to lead potentially to the same place just because something looks important to begin with doesn't mean that it's going to hold up under scrutiny there are lots and lots of things that um that our culture and our colleagues tell us are important that i think with a little bit of reflection come to look trivial and i'm glad that you mentioned obsession with achievement because for my clients, for people listening to this podcast, this is very close to heart. And this is the reason why they are here in the in their point in life. But this is the reason why I am here in my point in life and why I can be able to have this podcast with you and this conversation with you from the starting point of my life. This obsession with not with achievement, but with contribution, with being mm. able to go up and up and up. So, so this is actually very, very relevant for our audience because we have when I am when I'm doing mentoring calls over the weekend with clients, I don't need to tell them that they need to focus on getting the results that we're discussing and 
taking steps that we're discussing, I need to make sure that they're getting some rest so they don't burn out and so that they still invest in time with their family and the children and so on. So for someone who is very driven and working themselves at, to the maximum for decades, what would you recommend they include in their life to have a more happy life? Yeah. That is more worth living. So one practice that we study each year in the Life Worth Living class at Yale is the Jewish practice of Sabbath. And most Orthodox Jews won't claim that non-Jews should take up Sabbath. It's not something that that they're recommending as, as a kind of, you must do this in order to live well. Um, and it can be dangerous to, to yank it out of its context and say, oh yeah, I, I can do Sabbath even though I don't think that God said I need to. But with all those caveats, I still think there's something profoundly important for our students and could be for your listeners in encountering a kind of rest that's not actually about rejuvenating so you can get back on the horse and ride harder and faster tomorrow, but a kind of rest that is about celebrating a goodness that is given to you rather than achieved by you, that is recognizing that you did not make everything, that your contributions, real and important though they are, are not the be-all and end-all of existence. And in fact, most of what there is is something that you have received and is worth celebrating regardless of whether you built it or not. That is very true. One of the practices in my life is I have a daily walk. I just go for a walk and I just pay attention to, I just completely alone with nature. Sometimes I, I take a walk with someone else, but still it, it, it is this meditative experience and connection to the broader universe and the world and all the nature around us. And of course, we did not create it. We're just part of it. And it is it is definitely very, very powerful in centering you and helping you live much more worthwhile life because your life has this aspect of stepping away from all the busyness of the day and just coming back to being grateful for everything that we have as humans around us that we never had to create, but we enjoy every day. Yeah. I, I think gratitude sometimes gets cheapened. It gets turned into a trick for feeling better, but from my own personal perspective, I believe it's one of the, the most fundamentally important stances that we can take toward the world around us. And I think anyone who really takes the time to go for a walk, you will notice that all the stress will start melting away. You will you will start just, you go into a different mindset. And it's very, very therapeutic. And it's also very, very, it's, it's great for insights as well. You get amazing insights for your work, for how you can serve the world better. So what are, by the way, your practices? How do you celebrate life versus just mm. Yeah. I mean, I'm still very much practicing, trying to get better at these sort of things. 
so I'm a I'm a Christian theologian, and so a lot of my practices are connected to my church community and the sort of practices that I've received from this tradition. Um, things like prayer, things uh, like what we call worship, which is kind of directing a sort of praise towards God that um, that doesn't really depend entirely on what God has done for you. It's just because it's fitting and good. Um, I also take walks. I, I think those are very important. And um, I don't know if I'd call it a practice exactly, but being present with my kids is um, immensely valuable in reminding me that uh, that who I am is substantially more important than what I achieve in almost every respect. Ryan, and with raising children, at what age you start sharing with them this this type of thinking and how do you introduce it and how our listeners can introduce it for their children? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, my experience is that is that most children will find their way into it. They will start asking big questions at bedtime really early on. Um, and so the 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 key is not to squelch it. Um, and my own temptation to squelch it is from a sort of fear that if we let the questions keep on going, I won't have an answer. And what I need to have for them is an answer. But I'm pretty convinced what I need to have for them is a stance of... Uh, engagement and eagerness and trust that um that this kind of questioning isn't fruitless that it's not just spinning our wheels and that it's not leading us towards some abyss but towards some real depth to our lives do, do you remember any of the questions that were particularly interesting stood out for you oh that's i should have these just like ready to go But I don't. I don't. I'm sorry. I just don't have a good one right right on the tip of my tongue. That's okay. And from what, so, so you, your recommendation would be to wait for kids to ask, to start asking those questions, not bring it up. Yeah, I think there can be, I, I suffer from the tendency to want to kind of uh, treat my kids as like a training project, right? Or like I, I need to design the curriculum and then walk them through it. Um, but again, I think it's it's best treated as a matter of responsiveness. Um, I believe these are deeply human questions. And so so most kids at some point when they're ready are going to start coming to it. Maybe something happens in life, right? Uh, maybe there's the death of a grandparent or something like that, that that starts to spark questions for kids. And if you have been with them and stayed with them uh, long enough, just comfortably, they'll bring those questions to you. And then that's the moment to to dig in and again, not to get scared or to try to shut it down, but to let that conversation blossom and see where it goes. Ryan, and when you managing the class and the course, what are some areas where you feel those are areas where students usually have these aha moments and they start having a shift in how they see the world, see their life? Mm, that's That's great. It's very hard to predict. 
it differs from year to year and student to student because they all come from different perspectives and they all wind up making different judgments about what it is that that really matters. Very often it happens in conversation between students. Um, so it's a question that one student will ask another. Um, one other thing that maybe is a common thread is we take students on a retreat, um, uh, just a day long couple of sessions where we get to know each other as human beings, not as kind of seminar participants who maybe are trying to just sound really smart or, um, you know, do the normal classroom stuff. And it's almost always the case that that somebody will tell a story in that setting that shifts somebody else's perspective and then sticks with them and it comes back up over the course of the semester. Um, well, I've, I've said all that, but I do really think the Sabbath thing that blows people's minds pretty much every year. So since you brought it up second time, let's dive in a little bit for someone who is not familiar there. Let's say they were Christian all their life. They know that they have colleagues that cannot work on Friday evening and on Saturday, but beyond that, they don't really know what to do. So would you just recommend that people just have a rule for themselves? They don't work on Friday at the sunset and then they don't work on Saturday until the sun set. Yeah, it it's hard if it's if you're not part of the community that receives this as a commandment from God for that community, um, it can feel like you're trying to make it up on your own. I think it works best if you can find if you can gather a few people to do something like this together so that you can know that there's somebody else with you in it. And then you've got to ask questions like technology use, right? Um, is the kind of rest that I'm looking for the kind that I can get from switching from email on my phone to Netflix on my phone? Or am I looking for a different kind of rest? Maybe do I need to turn the phone off for a whole period of time? Whether it's a full 24 hours or you start smaller, I think some sort of blocked time for rest uh, could be really important. And rest, again, that's not just about making it so you feel better to work harder tomorrow, but so that you are rejoicing in things that you didn't achieve. And they can, I can definitely see the value. I remember one time I, I was in especially heavy period, work period. And my friend said, the only way you're going to rest is if electricity went off and you will run out of the battery eventually on your computer. And then therefore you, you will not be able to read right. anything. It's evening and, and the electricity went off right after that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so interesting. And, and then the, the, the computer, uh, of course, ran out of battery and I, I didn't, didn't want it to use all the battery because I didn't knew how long we will have no electricity. So eventually I just closed it to keep it just in case some kind of light source at least. And then it was an incredible experience because I could just sit down on a, on a rug and, um, and, and, and just, there was no option of doing any work or even reading or doing anything or doing writing. And unless you can write in the dark, I can definitely yeah. see the value, but forcing yourself to do it on a weekly basis. That's why having commitment with other people, right? We're going to do this together. That can really, really help a lot. Definitely. Have you tried doing something like this for yourself? So my co-author, Matt Crosman, has, and I have consistently failed. 
uh, I'll be honest. Um, my wife and I will talk about it periodically and there's always some kind of excuse for why, uh, we can't really do it during that 24 hours or, you know, it should probably start after the kids basketball practice. And then, well, after the basketball practice, we got to do this, that, and the other thing. So I'm not speaking here from a place of great personal moral authority. What I'm what I'm saying is what I've seen in other people's lives and what I'm hoping for for my own. Yes, I have definitely seen it as well. For people who practice practice like that, it, it is very effective. And I even heard feedback like that's the only reason I'm alive because otherwise I would be working all the time. Mm, yeah. To rest. So I, th I feel that this is such an important conversation, but for many people, it feels that we are hovering around some core, yeah. but we are not going to the core. So I'm trying to think about how we can we get to the core. And, and maybe we can start with some examples of answers. What is a life worth living? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I, I can give a couple of examples with a couple of caveats i need to, to just to be responsible here these are going to be broad brush strokes i'm going to be washing out all sorts of important uh distinctions and, and nuances and things of that sort and complexities just to try to to paint a picture for what at the broadest level the kind of answer might might look for, look for so um so one might be a life of fidelity, of faithfulness to a community or a mission. And uh, where that mission comes from and what that community is, those are really, really, really important questions, right? That's going to change. Um, I think you could read certain texts in the in the Chinese Confucian tradition in this sort of way that there's um, the good life is about harmonizing with the way of the world and about a kind of faithful participation in those rhythms um, such that what you're looking to do is to analyze the roles in your life. Um, mother, sister, uh, boss. Right. And to think about what do those roles require of me to, to do well in a way that harmonizes with the rest of the society and the world around me. Alternatively, um, you know, this week in, in class, we're reading some some Muslim texts. And here the answer is going to be um, a, a radical submission of yourself to, to God, the creator of the world. And uh and obedience to the way that God has has pointed for humans to live, and then flourishing because of that obedience, it, it winds up being a joyful and uh, an abundant life. Following out of that, but the joy and the abundance come from the submission and the obedience, and that's really different from a from the sort of utilitarian perspective I, I presented before, which is to say the thing that matters is how people and animals feel, and so. Uh, the good life is a life that feels good, but the moral life is a life that helps as many people feel as good as possible. And um, I don't know; these are these are really big sketches. And it's the hard thing is you've you've got to have answers to these at the implicit level or the explicit level. So if you're if you're sitting there thinking this is too abstract, there's no way I can do it. The problem is you've already done it. 
you already do have a kind of implicit sense for what it is that really matters. And the trouble is that if you notice what that implicit sense is, you might not be willing to ratify it. You might not be willing to say, I, I agree with my own sense of what matters. And, uh, and that's the value of this reflection. It might not give you a, a, a really easy answer. It might not give you like a five word statement of the good life. Uh, but it'll help you get towards something that you believe is sturdier than wherever you are unreflectively right now. Ryan, and as a person who is so heavily focused on this question of what is life worth living, you wrote a book, co-wrote a book on it, you teaching a course on it. Do you still, I wonder about your journey, how, how that clarity in your head was changing as you were going through the journey. And after that, I would love to discuss where you are now. Yeah. So I can't, I can't tell this story in any way that, um, that doesn't focus around Christian faith. So I hope it's kind of okay as an example of, of how this goes. Um, you know, for me, I grew up in a in a household that went to church, and uh, it was a pretty good church, uh, as far as I can tell, and as far as I experienced it. I knew from an early age that things often went very awry with Christianity, um, that there was a kind of um, prideful way to to do it, and a kind of um, arrogant sense that you had it all figured out. And I, I reacted really negatively to that and still do. And so my path of questioning left from there, but it came back relatively quickly. Um, I started to, to feel like the world was that there is something deep and rich in the world that bespeaks a love that is behind it um, and that makes all of the tragedy and horrible stuff in the world show up as tragic and horrible. The goodness, this is how my, my co-author Miroslav talks about it. The goodness is primordial. Goodness comes first. It's fundamental. And all of the badness only shows up that way with that background of goodness. Only because human lives are valuable does the loss of a human life hurt and does is it is it a, a bad thing and i i started to just have something like this sense and couldn't shake it um and i would look at the person of jesus and say that looks like the kind of love that i perceive in the world and um and so i got back and i kind of well i suppose i just kind of stayed involved in christian communities and uh, one of the amazing things about them is they're always really imperfect. <laughs> um, and, uh, and there's a constant sense that, um, we don't have what it takes to live up to the kind of perfection that would be a life most truly worth living. Um, but that there is a grace there at all times for it. And that's that, that to me is what undergirds all of this process of questioning. I have a basic trust that um, that I that we won't be lost 
in my questioning uh, that there that there's a worthiness there and it's a matter of discovery, not a matter of um, of kind of like hoping and wishing that maybe it's out there somewhere. It's a matter it's a matter of uncovering of that that worthiness. Is this this is a kind of abstract way of putting a story. I'm a kind of an abstract guy, but um, is it is it connecting? Is it telling you the sort of the sort of arc that you were hoping to hear? Yes, Ryan, it is very helpful. And I wonder now that you have been doing this work for a while, are there still questions there that you are trying to answer for yourself? Yeah, yeah, there are always always questions. Um, I mean, some of the times the questions for me are just. Is any of this at all credible? <laughs> like, does it does it make any sense? Is it all believable? Um, uh, one question that sticks with me a lot these days is is how should we respond when we fail to live the kind of life we believe we ought to live? Um, because my experience of my own life is is that I'm falling short a lot of the time <laughs> uh, in one way or another, and. Um, and it's hard not to fall into cycles of kind of unproductive self-recrimination. And um, it's also hard not to just excuse yourself all the time and pretend like because you can't seem to get it right doesn't means that it's not worth trying. Um, so this is a question that I still I still am wrestling with, still trying to learn what it means really to respond maturely and uh and productively to those experiences of failure and i think it is actually completely common for all high achievers we just the reason we are high achievers is because we demand a lot of ourselves and we kind of some, somewhat critical to ourselves so over time we get better at managing it but this is one of the characteristics of people who are driven yeah and it, and if you take that drive with you into these sort of questions of worth, then the danger is, yeah, that you wind up kind of wrecking yourselves on the rock of existential guilt. And uh, as far as I can tell, that's not very helpful. <laughs> that is very true. And I think one thought that can be very helpful is that you're not alone. You're not alone yeah. in those questions. We should be asking those questions together. Precisely, precisely. And that's the... There are so many social scripts that we have that keep us from going to this level, even in relationships where it would be appropriate and meaningful and and wonderful. And uh, and one barrier where where there can be a tendency to think that is a college classroom couldn't possibly be the a place where you have these questions on the table as matters of of common pursuit of truth. Because to respect each other's differences, surely we need to leave those this kind of question off to the side. Um, but I think one thing that we have honestly a little bit to our own surprise discovered is that you can. It keeps being possible to have these conversations. And that gives me hope for all sorts of other contexts, whether it's uh, certain kinds of work contexts or just you know our friendships to push a little deeper and to go into these questions of worth and to find that they'll deepen our relationships and deepen our lives. Ryan, and since you study this topic, there's one question that some of my clients are struggling with and they for broader community struggles with, so closer clients, clients that I mentor closely and they for broader community struggles with. And I get feedback as well from broader community sometimes related to that question. 
And that is for someone who is very driven, and they're usually in a situation where they are responsible not just for themselves, but for the extended family, because those are usually people who go far beyond from the place where they were supposed to be from terms of in terms of where they were born and what was lining up for them. They broke yeah. up orbit, but now they, they, they pull in the family with them. And the question they're asking is, should I have children? Can I even have children? Because then I have to, it will slow me down. I will not be able to do what I need to do. I was wondering if you have any advice on that. I mean, this is one of the most profoundly personal questions that you can ask. Nobody can, uh, nobody can answer it for you. Um, so it's a very serious thing to, to venture any comments here. I have found in my own life that having children crystallized a truth about the world that is very important to have in front of me which is that life exceeds me, uh, that there is no such thing as meeting all the demands, having everything under control. Um, it is fundamentally the case that not everything is in your control. And, and having children, for me, one of the experiences was, oh, I, I had a, a lot of stuff together, right? Um, and now there is a beautiful embodied token of the fact that no i didn't have everything together uh that was kind of a mirage and so so there's a so one reason you might fear having children is oh because it will it will me it will make it so i can't keep everything together um and i think my my sense is it will show you that you never could and um and so that's not a good reason not to have children there are plenty of good reasons not to have children i'm sure but um, that one, I would think, in my experience, that one rings a little hollow. That is such an interesting answer, very interesting perspective, that you, you actually, it's a mirage, that you have everything in control. Yeah, I mean, at any, at any time, um, everything could, could come crashing down, regardless of your best efforts. And, um, and to live with the illusion of control is i think um a potentially very dangerous thing because it can get us obsessed with control and make us kind of controlling people to where we are we're trying to shape the world in a way according to our will just to keep us feeling secure and, and in control um and there's just there's so much better ways to live than that and that is so interesting that our question about children brought us to this conversation about control because I feel that it is also close to the core of this discussion and life worth living in that life you need to feel free and when you try to control everything you're not free oh that's a that's a really good insight that's that's really important because uh one of our default ways of thinking about freedom is control um, that we're free when we can do what we want, when we want, how we want, and that the world kind of responds accordingly. Uh, but there is, I think, often under underneath that, uh, a kind of captivity to control, um, a way that that we are not able to receive well. Um, there's a there's a classic um, 
there's classic Jewish text that that talks about uh, how uh, so the story of the giving of the law to to the Jewish people on Mount Sinai. Uh, famously, Moses comes down the hill with the the law written on two stone tablets, uh, right, and then it breaks the tablets. But that's a different story. Um, the word for engraved there um, can be read two different ways. Um, it can be read as engraved or as freedom, and the 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 rabbis will point out that the the kind of receiving of this law is actually a giving of freedom because freedom isn't a matter of control over your own life, but of uh, living in response to the the deepest reality of things. For someone who now listening to this, thinking, I'm so glad Chris told me not to switch to another podcast. To, to the next session and actually listen to this and they realizing now I'm actually trying to control everything in my life. I'm, 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 I'm controlling everything. What, what's some of the things they can start doing to become free? Oh, that's a, that is a great, great question. Um, attention to the world around you, I think is a really important starting place. Um, attention in a way that is uh, genuinely receptive of what's there and curious, questioning, um, wondering about it all can be, at least in my life, when I get kind of narrowed in and zeroed in on what I'm doing, I've got to get my projects done. This is where it's all about to have something jar me out and and draw me into its reality, which is other than mine. And so it's, it's go for a walk. That is a great practice that you've got. Um, preferably go for that walk without earbuds in for a podcast, um, even a good one like this, or uh, your phone, or you know, take your Fitbit off so you're not getting your steps counted, right? It's not a, uh, but just to kind of, attend to the world that is goes so far beyond all of your desires and all of the things that you're trying to achieve and all of your control. I agree. Nature is probably the quickest way to start getting closer to this, to breaking free from whatever, by keeping you in captivity, which is one of the things is you're trying to control everything. But in fact, you are the prisoner. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Ryan, and over the last few years of doing this work, what were the two, three aha moments, realizations that really stood out for you that you felt that those were bigger shifts in how you look at the world? Hmm. So I had... um... we've had the privilege of teaching with a lot of different people who come through because we teach the class as small seminars and one person can really only manage one of them at a time. Um, and uh, someone who became a really good friend of mine, Angela Gurel, um, went through just a, a horrible period of loss right at the beginning of teaching life worth living Um She's written about it in her book called The Gravity of Joy, which is spectacular. And 
um, Angela told the story on her last day in class of um, kind of receiving some of this horrible news of loss and and finding herself just kind of bereft. And she told the students, um, you know, I hope you get a vision of a life worth living that will sustain you in the moments when you're down on the pavement. Um, I hope you'll get a vision of a life worth living that will anchor you when your life is a storm. And, um, you know, I've lived a, a pretty privileged life. Uh, things have gone really well for me and um to be reminded that this isn't uh this isn't a game uh it's not something that is just intellectual curiosities but is at the beating heart of our lives was really important to me because there's a there's always a risk in doing this kind of work that you just do it for the sake of doing it. It becomes your thing, right? Um, and oh, what what an awful shtick to have if your shtick were the the life worth living shtick, right? Um, and so that that stands to me as a kind of testament to doing this right, which is to say treating it with the gravity that that it deserves. Very very true, and. I wish that every university would have a course like that, not only undergraduate, but also graduate level, because obviously some people missed already the undergraduate level <laughs> for graduate. And yeah, some I've, the reminder. I've been I've been privileged enough to teach some some school of management students at Yale, and it's always it's so wonderful to to have folks who um, who are right in the thick of learning the the kind of cutting edge uh, of strategic thinking. Uh, but are also dedicating some of their time to this real profound reflection on on the whys and what kind of whys are are really worth investing their lives in. Ryan, was there anything that you wish I asked you, but I didn't? Mm. I I'm drawing a blank. I there are. There are frivolous questions I I would would have loved for you to to ask you know ask me more about my favorite figures and um and things of that sort but we've covered a lot of ground in this conversation and I think it's we're always biting off more than we ch we can chew with these these kind of questions and so um so pretty much anywhere you start there's a rich conversation there to be had and and all the questions wind up coming up uh, one way or another. So thank you. It's been, it's been wonderful. Thank you, Ryan. It is a great place to end this session. Before we do, do you have any final words and also where people can learn more about you, about the book and so on? Yeah. So uh, you can go to lifeworthlivingbook.com for uh, to order, to get a discussion guide, because I really do think that uh, conversations in, in a group of people are the best way to do this. And so we've put together a guide to, to help you do that, um, to learn about any events that we've got going on. Uh, but the main thing is, um, you know, we call the, these kind of questions, the question, these are the question of our lives. And, and for people who are, um, who are busy and successful, 
um, there, there's always more to do. And so the, the encouragement would be uh, to find a little time to just carve out a little bit of space for the question um, and to let it take root and see what it blossoms into in your life. It is very, very powerful to find the time. And I would say that you don't even need to, the way our brain works is sometimes we ask a question and then we do other things and the answers start coming. So you just want Precisely. to plant the seeds, start planting the seeds. Think about it when you're having a shower. I always tell my clients, use other use opportunities you have. So, so definitely that there is time in the day to ask yourself as important question as what should I be doing? I, am I going in the right direction? What my life should be? So it is worth living. So on, on my deathbed, I actually look back and think, wow, I had a good life. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you very much, Ryan. Such a pleasure to have you with us. For everyone again. Our guest today is Ryan Anelli Linz, such a beautiful last name. Check out his book. It's called Life Worth Living. And I'm looking forward to see you all next time. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.